Hello, and welcome to The Burning Castle, where each week we take a journey with someone who's looking at a world on fire and asking how they can bring their own form of iconoclastic change to make things a little or a lot better. For those who aren't familiar, The Burning Castle is a reference to the original iconoclast Abraham, who sees a burning world and asks if there's no master at home to put out the flames. The response he receives is to go out and become a stronger person so he can create a better world. With your host, Ashley Rinsberg. Hello, and welcome to The Burning Castle. This is your host, Ashley Rinsberg. Today, we'll be talking to LA-based documentary filmmaker, Amelia Greendom. As a documentary film producer, Amelia has worked on some fascinating and important films everyone should see, including Watchers of the Sky, which tells the story of Jewish-Polish attorney Raphael Lemkin, who laid much of the groundwork for modern-day human rights, including by coining the term genocide. In the interview, Amelia talks about filmmaking, how being a producer helps her empower other artists, and what it's like to be a woman working in documentary film today. This is a great interview with a brilliant and dynamic filmmaker. It's not to be missed. Just as a reminder, this episode was recorded back when the show was called The Meaning Creators, in case you hear that name pop up in the interview. Now, on to the episode. So yeah, this is The Meaning Creators interview, and as I explained in the emails, it's a really just about people who are doing creative work that part of the reason, or a big part of the reason they're doing it is because it contributes meaning to their own lives and most likely to the lives of other people. So the so far it's been a novelist, a quilter, a typographer, and the next one coming up is an, is an Israeli novelist, Eshkol Nevo. Whoa, that's a cool uh, group to be uh, included among. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's fun. And, and then after you, there'll be a, a coffee roaster who's um, an Israeli coffee roaster, who's quite an interesting character. And, Special guy. Nice. I read the topographer interview. I really uh, loved his work. He's amazing. He's awesome. He kind of doesn't fully know it. He does because he's a professional and he's been doing this for a long time, but he also doesn't. I sent the interview, if you know who Seth Godin is. No, I don't think so. Seth Godin is like in the world of marketing, would people say guru, but he's the actual guru. And he's sort of a big deal in that world. And he was like, this is the most amazing piece of type I've ever seen, the, the red olive, the black and red olive. And then yeah. he wrote to Avram being like, I, this is astonishing. Like, I can't believe how beautiful this is. So we were like, uh. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it was a great, it was a triumph. A little triumph. A I triumph. love that, nice. Yeah, so yeah, with you, I think, you know, we can, we'll start the actual interview, but part of what's so interesting about you and your own, it seems, is that you guys are working in so many different fields and, and forms of art and media and kind of seems like all at the same time. Which you have to explain that, how you do it. I'm trying to do it, it's not quite working. But let's start, let's have you tell us who you are and all the various things that you, you do do and right now are currently doing. Yes, so I am, no, if I identify as anything other than a documentary filmmaker, I think I'm primarily a documentary filmmaker. Mm. I have a background in journalism, but it's all been broadcast uh, in documentaries and kind of journalism for 
broadcast media, but I also write a little and I am dipping my toes into narrative, I guess is how I would put it. And, and narrative meaning nonfiction uh, filmmaking from the producing side, from the kind of writing and producing side. Mm -hmm. uh, so yes, and I've collaborated a little bit with Yaron, my partner, on some of his art projects, kind of from a producing side as well, of helping make them happen. Yeah, I feel like that sums it up. That's not the most concise <laughs> version. It's more concise than I, than I was expecting, because you, <laughs> yeah. you narrowed it down to one thing, which is great. Yeah, I, I identify as a documentary filmmaker, put it that way. And all these other things happening as offshoots from that. Why that? Why, how did you get there? Why, why do you stay there? It's probably not the easiest thing to do in life. No, it's not the easiest thing to do and it's ridiculous and there's no money in it. Right. Like all <laughs> so the good things. It's a fair, it's a fair question. Why do you stay there? I got into it because my, both my parents were in the film industry. My mother was a sound editor and my father is a feature film editor and he did big Hollywood romantic comedies. Mm -hmm. So I grew up, you know, kind of going to Disney Studios and the Sony lot and MGM and kind of visiting the back lot and cutting rooms and all of that and going to sets and seeing actors working and all that kind of stuff. And I wanted, but my parents were very like politically uh, aware and active, and my mother especially, she was very active in the union and very active in kind of the politics uh, that were happening in America and the UK, because she was British. And so I felt like, oh, okay, I like film. I want to be involved in film. I, I know this world and I like it, but I don't want to do what my parents did. I want to do my own thing. Mm -hmm. And, oh, look, you know, there's a form of film where you can kind of marry your political interests, perhaps, and social interests with filmmaking, and that's really documentaries. And I think especially for women who would, might find it hard or kind of finding it easier now, and there are some amazing trailblazers, but kind of hard to break through to the top levels of the feature film world, documentaries have really been a good home. I mean, not just women, I think people of color, the, the documentaries have given a path forward to a lot of filmmakers who maybe don't have access to the millions of dollars you need to make a Marvel film, let's say, but can perhaps raise a couple hundred thousand dollars to make their documentary. So I think mm -hmm. if you look at like great documentary filmmakers, there's like a, a rich diversity of voices in a way that there is less so. I mean, it's changing, but it's less so in the feature film world. So I kind of found those people and those projects interesting and then my politics and creatively, you know, documentaries have small crews. So when you're starting out, that means you can do everything and you can see every kind of line of work, which is really interesting. And it just gives you access to the full experience of making a film. Whereas if you're on a big feature film, you have your narrow little, you know, even if you're just an intern, you're an intern for this department and you only see that department's work. And it's a very kind of narrow experience. Whereas uh, documentary films and indie films, maybe to a lesser extent, you know, you can experience more. So I got into it that way. Yeah, just wanting to uh, make documentaries. And then I got, I interned at the BBC briefly in London. 
and then I had kind of internships and then a kind of a low level job uh, on Bill Moyer's program at PBS mm. in New York. And then I worked my way up there and I left there as, as a producer, an associate producer and working on his program. Did you yeah. ever at BBC, did you ever cross paths with Tim Samuels? No. Who's Tim Samuels? He's a documentary. Sorry. He's a documentary. He does like short, like short, like hour long documentaries. Oh, cool. Culture. Like he did, I only asked because I talked to him on the phone a couple nights ago, but he, he did a really great documentary on the Smiths a few years back, which. Oh, interesting. I'll have to was, check that out. Great. Yeah, it was really cool. I, it's, on, it's on YouTube. Oh, I love like learning about new documentary filmmakers. I'll definitely check yeah. that out. I was like in, we were doing a series called, that was called like The Trouble the Trouble of Love, The Trouble, yeah, maybe The Trouble of Love, something like that. It was mm -hmm. a multi-part series, and I ended up having to go to the British Library, which is amazing. I am. I love it. And, have you been there? And I, whenever the, we're there. I, we, we're in London three, four months out of the year, and I'm like, I'm beeline for the British Library. Oh, nice. It's the that's best nice place. There for so long every year. Yeah, that's and my wife's British. So. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's a good amount of time to get away and get to be there. Yeah, yeah. Well, the amazing thing is because it's the BBC, you know, they very quickly pulled the strings and got me access right. to the real reading room. Right, right. And I got to go and like handle these 15th century manuscripts. Wow. And it That's was just, crazy. it was like, you know, just out of college and it was amazing. And it's wow. actually set me on the path to do archival producing, which is what I do when I'm not producing my own projects is I do yeah. archival producing for other people's projects. And just, I like early on just, archival stuff I find fascinating. And so mm -hmm. that's also been a thread throughout my kind of professional life is doing archival stuff. What does it mean exactly? It means basically overseeing all of the non-original footage in a documentary. So mm. you know, some documentaries just have a few clip, you know, a few old photos or something, but more and more documentaries these days have like 90% is not footage mm -hmm. they shot themselves, you know, the filmmakers, not interviews or whatever. It is archival material mm. you get from lots of different archives and you know, it can be old footage, but it can be photos, it can be audio, it can be whatever, and you kind of get it and you put together the film from it. So if you're archival producing, you're finding it and then you're licensing it and you're negotiating for it and all of that. It's like the, the kid stays in the picture where there was like, yeah. I mean, from the outside, it looked like a bit of a revolution where they kind of just did this whole new thing. Oh, no, totally. They did a really interesting uh, treatment for the archival. Yeah. yeah. No, it's been great. There's like more recently, I think the Amy documentary, if I'm remembering correctly, that was all archival, like 100%. They did their own interviews, but they were audio interviews. And so you're hearing the interviews, but you're not seeing any interviews. You're just seeing beautiful, amazing archival footage. So, That's so cool. Yeah. Love yeah, that. It was. In college, I worked a different kind of archive, but it was a paper, it was a scientific archive. And an MIT professor, historian of science wanted to, it was the country's first material science archive. And it was like carbon paper. It was like literally disintegrating. So they hired me to scan this whole thing and create like a, a structure to house it, file structure. And that kind of got me interested in, in the notion of what an archive is. And then I ended up working after college at the Internet Archive, which is mm, yeah, totally. the whole web. And that was also very interesting that the founder, Brewster Kale, that's his passion in libraries and archives. And I could relate, especially as a 
I wouldn't call myself a book collector. It's a little too strong of a term, but I love having books around, old books too. So how did you get to the Sublime Project? It sounds like that's a bit of a, not a leap, but a step from... Sublime, yeah. How did I get involved in that film? I don't know. You know what the weird thing is? And maybe this isn't strange, but I find that the film industry, and maybe this is true of other creative industries, is all word of mouth. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever asked to see my resume. I mean, I just like, it's like I keep it for myself. And I, I guess it's just all word of mouth. And I would say just about everything I've ever done has maybe in some way been connected to Bill Moyers. <laughs> just because when I started out working for Bill Moyers, I'm now with Bill Moyers, his program, it was just an amazing group of people. And all those people have since left and done interesting things. Mm -hmm. And could probably trace like 90% of the projects I've done back to somebody involved in that first project, you know, suggesting somebody else to somebody else and it ends up coming to me or to I suggest them to somebody else or what have you. So mm -hmm. I would guess that there was probably some sort of Bill Moyers connection that led me to the Sublime film. But yeah, I did the documentary on Sublime, and that is, I started out doing all the archival stuff. I ended up with a uh, co-producer credit, but I, I, I really oversaw their archival stuff to begin with because that was, <laughs> that was a huge amount of amazing material. And we're still waiting for the film to be released, though, so I don't know. Uh, hopefully that'll be soon. Certain other projects, you could imagine, you know, the British Library is for a certain project, a natural step. But for Sublime, how do you go about finding that kind of footage? That is all, speaking of word of mouth, that's all talking to people. It's like picking up the phone and having conversations with people and having them trust you. And so they introduce you to other people they know and visiting their homes and going through their garage with them as they're going through old boxes and finding old photos. Mm, and wow. that was a lot of driving around Long Beach and Orange County <laughs> and you know, around Los Angeles. Yeah, listening, I, I did. I, I Listening to Sublime as I drove and uh, going to visit people and talking to them. And there are also some amazing hardcore collectors of uh, not just sublime memorabilia, but photographs and original lyrics. And they were either, you know, friends of the band or they were just people who since then, you know, just love the band and have mm. uh, made it their business to collect material. Wow. Yeah. So it's, um, I imagine part of it is like you uncover these things and once they're uncovered, it gives someone an opportunity to actually save it, to recover it. You know what I mean? Rather than just languishing in, in the garage, in they the now garage. have it in their hands. Yes, that is true. That's definitely true. What's interesting, though, about working on a film, as opposed to, let's say, just building an archive, to have an archive of, you know, sort of material, is at the end of the day, in a film, the story trumps everything, mm -hmm. as it should. You don't want to watch a film that's just amazing archives strung out, like as interesting as that might be for the nerds among us. You know, and I could I could watch that all day. It's just a film of amazing archive. But, you know, in a film, you really want the story to trump everything. And so what I always find really interesting, actually, is that sometimes you find these amazing gems, never been seen before, a new film transfer of amazing material. It's just, it's incredible. And it just like doesn't make the cut. <laughs> it doesn't end up in the film. And that's because it just doesn't need to be there. And right. because the story is the most important thing and you have to service the story 
And if you lose sight of that or forget that, you end up with a really boring film or a film that doesn't make sense or a film that's not as powerful as it could be. Kill Your Darlings. Yeah, Kill Your Darlings. Exactly. Which it hurts yeah. every time, but at some point it's like you become a serial killer of darlings <laughs> and, it, and then it starts hurting, stops hurting so much. And you're just like, yeah, whatever, it's just another, another darling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, the, it's also the advantage of having an editor, both in writing, I think, but also right. in a film because I am of the belief, and I probably just get this from my father, who never wanted to hang out. My, my dad, you know, did these big Hollywood films, but he didn't want to like schmooze with the actors. He wasn't like one of the editors who was like, oh, I really just want to be on set hanging out with the actors. Like he really respected them, but he felt like I'm going to do right by them if I don't edit them as if they're my friend and oh that's so I love when you know he does this and I got to include it because he'll really be happy he did an amazing performance here and instead just be brutal mm, like I don't nice. care how hard you work for that shot I don't care how hard that was totally. to film I'm just gonna cut it if right. it's not working and right. you can sometimes need that outside person you know with documentaries you need an editor who's like I don't care how you know rare that footage is like congrats wonderful you got some really rare footage, you dealt with somebody who didn't want to give it to you and you convinced them to give it to you. You know, here's a gold star, I'm not going to use it. <laughs> it doesn't make sense for the project and I'm not going to use it. You really need that balance. Yeah, but it's also, I think it cuts to the core of the impermanence of all kinds of creation, that there's always that notion, and I think we all carry it inside ourselves, that, okay, the project will be done, it, whatever happened will happen, and then time will just sweep it away. I mean, that mandala, that sand drip thing, it's just gonna go anyway. So as long as you've done the thing you wanted to do to a level that you wanted to do it, then mission accomplished, move on with your life. And I think that's where we see really great creators, whoever they are, whatever they're doing, they just move on to the next thing. Then it's not like they like sit and like marinate in that previous project. Like Woody Allen's just like, Next film, next film, next film, next film. You're just like, wow, yeah. that's amazing. That's like, there's something so zen about that. Despite his, you know, the neurotic type in, in the films. He yeah. strikes me as the opposite of that because he's just moving on. Yeah. No, that's totally, I think that's true. I think it's really a nice feeling when you do that with a film. You know, just be done, close that chapter. Yeah. It's delivered. Yeah. And uh, like literally, you just have your delivery paperwork. Here's the delivery paperwork, you know, handing it off, emailing it off. And then, you know, you cannot think about it again, at least for 10 years until the rights come up again and you have to revisit <laughs> relicensing it or whatever. Right. But yeah, no, I think that that's true. I think the sad part of that, though, I will say, at least in films, is that you develop a really tight relationship with people when you're working on a project. Right. Right. And then when it ends, you move on to a different team. Yeah. You Sometimes you stay with the same team for multiple films and that's a privilege and amazing. But sometimes you just move on to another team and it, there's a sadness to also leaving some of those relationships behind. And you can stay in touch and you do and you, know, you uh, develop friendships and so forth. But you move on to another project and you're working intensely in another project with another group of people and talking to them every day. And yeah, I mean, you have to kind of let go a little bit also that period of your life where you were working on that one film, it's not just kind of letting go the work, it's also letting go the moment. Letting go of the, of the person that you were for that period of time. It's Exactly. I guess that's the hard part of growth, you know, is that you don't, we never want to let go of that previous. So 
we yeah. just got to know that person and now it's time to say goodbye and there's something heartrending about even when it's when it's um, a positive progression you know you still want to cling to that thing but that kind of makes me wonder about the question of meaning and all this because it's like it can seem when you're jumping you're you're moving from project to project and you know it sounds like you've got enough of a reputation or enough experience that you can move to the next project so where do you locate the meaning if you're you know you're moving from job to job and so that it doesn't just become you know like you're a union worker on to the next job but that it's something because it, it is rooted in a form of art or something that delivers meaning to people so what is it how do you manage that yeah. thing i find that i get meaning from the subjects i choose to work on and I've occasionally taken on projects, mostly short ones, where I'm like not interested in the subject, but think, oh, as I get into it, I'll kind of dive in a little bit more and get more into it. And then I find that like, oh, no, not into this one, <laughs> not Still feeling not. it. And you do have to kind of just complete it. But yeah, I spend a lot of energy making sure I'm choosing the right projects to spend my time on because it is such a commitment of time and energy. And I, I choose things that I feel like either in the making of them, I'm going to find a lot of meaning because it's going to allow me to explore really interesting things. And just for me personally, the group of people, and it's just going to be a great experience for that period of time. Or because I know that the final product is going to be something I'm really proud of. I feel like it's going to contribute to the world. It's going to, it's going to give a message I think is really important. It's going to touch people. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it because of that. Like I worked on a documentary for almost six years, maybe even a little bit more, called Watchers of the Sky. Mm -hmm. which was about Raphael Lemkin, who coined the term genocide. And it was also about people today who are continuing his work. And I produced it, and it was a really, really tough project um, to produce for a variety of reasons. It had animation. Uh, it was filmed kind of all over the world. It was expensive to make. It's not a subject that's easy to fundraise for. So it's, it's just, it was a combination. I remember getting this, uh, the play-by-play -play from Abby at the time. Yeah. We were just like hearing what you were going through. Still going. Yeah. <laughs> still, it's still, still going. Still, still going. Yeah. 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 No, it was a really tough project to make. And we were very lucky that, you know, it went to Sundance. It sold. It won awards at film festivals. It was at the Jerusalem Film Festival. It won the Jerusalem Film Festival for documentaries. It did well which is great. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's very hard to work that hard and have it go nowhere, but that can happen too. But no, it was great. But what I really found it meaningful to work on it day to day, I liked the people I was working with. I liked the process of making it. But I've also found it incredibly meaningful because I still get emails about it. Mm -hmm. I, I would say once or twice a month, somebody reaches out to me through the website and says, you know, hey, I love this film. It's amazing. I'm a teacher in Texas. I'm teaching, you know, the Holocaust or genocide to my class. Can we show this film? I think it would really mean something to my students. Can, you know, can I have your permission to show the film? Or they, you know, you know I showed the film. My students thought it was amazing. I wanted to share their responses with you. Wow. Or 
so many, and it's and it's it's in the U.S., but it's also I get emails from Romania, I get emails from Germany, I have emails from Australia. It's incredible, and so it's just something to there's an impermanence to everything, but then there is also that you know it's been years since that film came out. I think it came out in 2014, and I'm still getting those emails, and it's wow. it just feels really good. It feels good to it's know amazing. that it's lived on and that it's affected people. That's amazing. You said that you work in some capacity with your own. Mm. How does that work? How does that, I mean. Okay, I'll tell you. <laughs> it, we've done a couple of things together. We, early on in our relationship, he, he has a long, interesting life story, but one element is that he was a guidance counselor for at-risk kids in, in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And he's an artist and he went to art school and he has a very interesting kind of art background. And in working with these kids, he started drawing them, but he developed his own very unique technique of drawing where he used marker and whiteout. And he would do these portraits of people using marker and whiteout. And he would do, and these kids would come to him very uh, upset or troubled. And he would say, hey, would you mind if I drew your portrait? And wow. in the process of drawing them, they would either open up and kind of start talking to him about things maybe they wouldn't otherwise, or they would just kind of be fascinated by what he was doing. And he had people burst into tears and say, nobody has ever looked at me like this, wow. you know, so intently. Um, people who really have a lot of home problems, you know, and, and so he had this kind of incredible experience and he had these amazing portraits. And he said to me at one point kind of early in our relationship, gosh, you know, it'd be amazing to just do more of this, you know, to drive around the country and draw portraits of random people. And, you know, I'm a producer. I was like, okay, well, let's do that. You know, how about this summer we drive around the country and, you know, I'll reach out to people and you'll draw their portraits and we'll have a body of work at the end of it of portraits all across America. Wow. And we did that. And we, we went, I reached out to people ahead of time and then I reached out to people on the ground and we drove all across America from New York to uh, Los Angeles and then back again. And wow. he drew portraits of, I mean, a lot of people. <laughs> I, I, he would know the total. I, I mean, probably a hundred maybe. And they were, you know, I mean, cowboys, like literally cowboys wearing the cowboy hat with a patch on the eye, you know, over one eye to an Elvis impersonator to, I mean, just all sorts of people. I, it really incredible. And then like he told me, like your own told me when he was working with these uh, at-risk youth uh, in Brooklyn, people would open up and they would talk to him while he was doing their portrait. And we had somebody admit that his son is really uh, a child. His wife had an affair and it's not really his kid, but he raises him as a son and he loves him. I mean, just like open up about all sorts of very intimate things that happen while somebody's being stared at and having their portrait done. And I, wow. I felt very lucky to get to witness that because I am not a, uh, you know, an artist in that sense. And uh, I got to watch that process happen and I filmed it a little and we did that. So that, that's one example of a collaboration. And then mm -hmm. more recently, I've pulled him in. Yaron is also a writer and I, I, I was 
asked to uh, find a script and then I was asked to write a script and I just did not have time to do it and Yaron ended up doing it and I had nice. pulled him into screenwriting and uh, he is now on his third screenplay and we're trying wow. to get one of them made and can you talk about what what the subject of no no I <laughs> off the record <laughs> off the record, I could tell you, but uh, on the record, okay. no. So we'll, we'll come back to it at a, yeah. you know, at a later date. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What do you see for yourself on the horizon? What's the, you know, do you want to just keep moving to different projects I, as a producer? Or do you want to do something different? I love producing. I, I really do because I love taking, helping somebody who has a vision, help them make it a reality. I really love kind of helping people who have a very specific vision achieve their goal. Like I find that uh, very rewarding. I like what's called creative producing. So meaning that it's not the line producing, it's, I mean, I do this too, but it's not mm -hmm. the budgets as much and the logistics it is more the sitting with a director and helping them figure out what are they thinking they want to bounce idea. You know, it's like being an editor in terms of a literary editor. It's, it's yeah. helping take somebody's kind of raw creative spirit and help them shape it and create it and get it to a place that it can be what they want and get out into the world. So I really like that. So I hopefully will get to continue doing that. Uh, going forward, both documentaries and, you know, hopefully uh, one of these scripts will uh, find a home one of these days. It sounds like a great role to be able to play because I think the person who's on the other side of that chair facing you, that person can tend to be really wrapped up in their own project and their own notion of success of the project and failure and the stakes become so disproportionately high. And it just like the solipsism kicks in with the, you know, and I feel like those people, and I, I know some, I know one in particular who's helped me for a long time on the book I just finished writing. You know, there's like such a level of selflessness in the moment which, I, you know, because like you see this person just, and I'm, I'm talking and talking and talking and like explaining and story points and this and that. And I'm like thinking to myself, how is he still listening to me? Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm sick of this shit. And he's still patiently listening to me. It's amazing. And I think there's something about that that sounds so freeing from that constant head, head cold of being obsessed with your own shit. So you know the, yeah it's amazing I, I find on the other side it's so rewarding to be able to hear that raw thought process because when it's in your own head it's sometimes hard to see the yeah. path forward i know yeah. with my own process when i'm writing or something it's sometimes you know just hard to see some things and it's so nice when you're on the outside and somebody's kind of coming at you with all this raw idea to be like, oh, but I see, I, I can see what you're going for. And I know mm -hmm. when I sometimes read your own's writing, I'll say, oh, but I didn't understand this thing. Your own will say, oh, no, no, but da 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 It's like, oh, but that's not on the page. <laughs> that was just in your head. <laughs> that's not on the page. Like, yeah. you, you've skipped. You've gone to, you know, the first paragraph, the last paragraph, and you forgot the middle paragraph, and you just thought it was there because it's so rich in your own head. Right. And so it's quite nice to be able to just, like, be like, ah, I see something that you need that's essential, but that has not yet made it out of your brain. Yeah, it, it's a fascinating relationship in general. You know, the editor and whatever you, you want to call that other part of the process, that person, 
because they can't exist without the other one. It's like a mutualism, you know, like you, they depend on each other, but you know, it's, it's not a dependency in a negative sense. They both are working for the benefit, not only of the other, but of themselves in the side of that relationship, which is, well, I guess, like a film. partnership. It's about the story. I mean, it's about, at least when it comes to filmmaking, it's we're all in service of the story. Right. It doesn't matter if you're the director or the writer of the film or the editor or an actor. It do, it's it's a team effort and you're all in service of the story. And, and at the end of the day, nobody is really working for anyone other than the story. I mean, you mm -hmm. might have Rector's vision that you're all working towards, but that vision had better be in service of the story. Otherwise, it's not going to work. And so mm -hmm. you are all just in service of the story. Which is also amazing because I, I think about that in terms of literature. And that's definitely not the case in a lot of instances. It's in service of the sentence. It's in service of the semicolon. It's in service of the writer's ego or their love for James Joyce. And the story go, gets left by the wayside. And I think that's gone on for a long time. And I, sometimes I read these novels that are amazing for the first 50 pages, 100 pages, whatever. And the writing, I'm just like, how do they write like this? I'm, I'm in awe. And, and then page 100 comes around and I'm like, huh? <laughs> like, okay, I got, the, I got the 100, I got the style. It's beautiful. The metaphor is amazing. How many more metaphors can I read without something else driving this thing along? And I feel like that's with streaming and just the rise of great TV again. I feel like there's a sort of downward pressure on writers to change the way they go about writing. So it's not enough to write an amazing, highly stylized sentence by sentence novel. It's just not gonna cut it. Audiences, even the most erudite intellectual audiences today are exposed to Netflix. They're used to that kind of storytelling on a daily basis and it's a high level storytelling. And I just can't see them being able to compete, writers being able to compete with Netflix without bringing that kind of storytelling to oh, the page. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very interesting. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know that I think that that's a bad thing at the end of the day, because I think that ultimately you want to feel something. Yeah. And the thing that will get you a feeling is less likely to be the semicolon and the metaphor, maybe the metaphor. Right less likely to be the semicolon and the sentence structure that's in yeah. service maybe of getting you to the story right. which is the heart of what will feel you know right. will give you a feeling and will leave you with something that you will carry if done well for the rest of your life right. i mean i suppose you can have a great story and if you don't write it well then what's the point you know that's yes for sure i think that's true and when i when i read you know david I don't read David Baldacci, but when I try to, or James Patterson or whatever, and I'm like, I should like it. It's supposed to be a great story, but I started reading like, it's just so powerful, you know, it's, yeah. there's nothing, there's nothing there. But I think it's a great thing. I think it's a great thing for literature and for storytelling. And I think about, you know, everyone loves to poo-poo Theodore Dreiser because he's the, he didn't know how to write a sentence, which I think is bullshit anyway. But his <laughs> books are incredible. The, the storytelling in those books, it's like they suck you in and they bring you along and, you know, he's not considered i think he's really underestimated today and i think he'll probably make some sort of comeback at some point but then you do have people like melville who did both on an insane level that's in every in every instance someone who can do the both of anything can do the two things at the same time that usually people can only do one of 
and those people are yeah. really well great. that's how you get to the greatness right. i love doris lessing I, I don't know if you've ever read any of her work not, but not it, really no i know she is but I, yeah i haven't really she read has great sense of storytelling and her writing I always feel is like water mm -hmm. it's so fluid and it's yeah. you don't think about it it's only if you stop and think about it you're like wow this is beautifully crafted this is really well done right. but it's only if you stop and think about it otherwise right. you're just you know on the river uh, of her storytelling it's wow. it's really I love that in, in a writer I agree 100 percent. and I'm reading a book right now like a really not just well-received, but celebrated book, recent novel. And it's great, but it's also, you start to feel like the writing is like, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. <laughs> and you know this writer has got the chops, like she can do that and she can show mm -hmm. it off and she can mm -hmm. play. But at the same time, you're watching her play. You're watching yeah. her pull out these metaphors and it's like, I don't really want to see you do that. I want to see this. I mean, it's still a great book. I won't take away, but um Fates and the Furies, or Fates and Furies. Okay. And it's, she's really on a level that I admire. Yeah. But some, and I feel like it's a, it's especially with younger, recent literary writers, the me, me, me thing is kind of like, I'm like, yeah. enough of you. I think that's true. Everybody's trying to set, this is a world we live in where there's so much great material. Yeah. That, and everybody is trying to set themselves apart a little bit or make a right. dent. Right. And it is often people feel like they have to be a little bit overwrought to make, they, they perhaps don't have the confidence in themselves in a way to like an easy confidence. And instead they have to right. show off. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I sometimes I, I worry that I've, the book I've just written, I've done the same thing, but with the plot, you know, I'm just like, I'm like, re, I write a synopsis of the plot and I'm like, Oh my God, what the hell is going on here? It's like, it's Baroque, you know, it's like, anyway. <laughs> We'll see about that. So anyways, this has been great. And I would definitely love to do an interview with Yaron. Love to meet him. I'd love to hear about his paintings, which I'm like kind of looking behind you every time. I oh yeah. Well, if you get him started on novels, you will never talk about his paintings because he can talk to you about novels. I mean, it'll be a solid hour of just talking about novels. He reads a, a book every two weeks and wow. Uh, wow. yeah. He, he would love to talk to you about novels. I think it sounds like he, he might have a good conversation with you about that. That sounds great. But that actually, that brings up one last question. That's the one I mentioned at the beginning. How do you guys deal with the productivity? I mean, you are parents, yeah. you're working, you're creating all this stuff, you're living your lives. Yeah, I think that it is forever a challenge. I mean, I just, I, I, we have a one and a half year old and of course it's coronavirus right now. So it's COVID, you know, it's the age of, of COVID-19. So, you know, he is not uh, in preschool or daycare or anything, although he is really ready for that. How do we do it? I mean, we just balance. I mean, we juggle. It's a lot of juggling. It's, I work from home. I worked from home before all of this and I don't know, it's hard. Yeah, I will, I'll say this about your own. If you give him a half hour, he will do something creative with it. Mm. So when our son Arthur is napping, Yaron is working on a novel. And mm. when, you know, the day ends, if there's a little light out, he's making a painting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I'm working on my projects basically during the bulk of the day while he's looking after our son. And we just juggle. I mean, what's mm -hmm. really hard is seeing each other. 
<laughs> as you know, that's, you know, we have maybe time for our own individual projects, although it never feels like enough time, but spending time as a family is the most important thing. And also something you really have to prioritize. Otherwise totally. it just won't happen. There has to be a sacred hour, two hours in the week and like, just to keep that sacrosanct and i think that's the yeah. way but it is tough and these are the the problems we should all have yeah i suppose that i suppose that's true and and look when you're looking after a kid you want to spend time and really engage with them but while they're playing by themselves you can also be thinking about whatever project you're working on and the things yeah. that are creatively fueling you you know to keep it all going yeah no, it's hard <laughs> i'm sure you deal with the same thing pretty much yeah i mean yes hundred <laughs> percent. That's, uh, that's the name of the game, but I, I, some ways I've got it really good. I'm flexible. My job's flexible. I get to have big chunks of time in the morning, which mm. is great for me. It's an, it's a bit of a new, a new era after working on a book for eight years, basically to see, okay, what, how does it all work now? And what can I do? And I'm finding things go a lot faster than an eight year long novel, which is like by comparison, everything's really quick. You know, like I wrote this yeah. pilot in like a few months. And I'm like, wow, that was easy. You know, I mean, not to say it's great or good, but it was done at least, you know? Yeah. Well, that's like, I worked on that documentary for like six years and now right. it's like, oh, wow, a year of film. Like, yeah, that's wow, nothing. That's it just yeah. keeps going. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but that's the apprenticeship. And I guess that's where the value of it is like being, having your nose to the grindstone for so long on one thing. And you really, it just creates that sort of, compulsive ability to just power through a project no matter what doesn't matter if i could do that thing i can do this thing so it's yeah. a gift but thank you for doing this is really great and generous of you and i appreciate it tremendously of course no um, it's a very interesting uh, thing you've got going on i can't wait to read your other ones and uh you know stay up on it thank you again mia and yeah. um until then thanks all right have a good uh, rest of your evening Even right night, evening? yeah Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, head over to theburningcastle.com to gain access to all interviews and tweet us at Burning Castle if you have feedback on this week's episode. Be sure to tune in for the next episode.